shame can keep you small and just know that everyone carries shame and that if you study shame, the best thing that you can do is to talk about the thing that you feel ashamed of with someone that you trust and get it out. Hello, friend. I'm so grateful that you're here. You're listening to Your Spin Out is Gorgeous, a podcast of communion, a place where we connect within the full spectrum of humanity. My name is Natalie Q, and I'm your host. I'm a mother, a lover, a friend, and your fellow human. What I want to offer you is liberation from the cultural foists, the narratives that are thrust upon us and guide much of our experience here on the planet. I'm with you on your journey of unlearning. What if everyone you knew was pursuing a life of whole self-integration, witnessing and offering thanks for all that they are, warts and all? That's not just self-care, that's true, unconditional self-love. And I want to be there with you as you set your life and all the things that aren't serving you alight. With you as you bravely consider life from another perspective. Let's explore all things humanity without the veneer, together. Life examined, not just the pretty parts. You in? Let's do this. Hello, I'm so glad you're here. Yay, another episode. This is so exciting and so fun. Today I have with me Jill Dodd. Now, have you ever wondered what a modern day harem looks like or someone who might have participated in a modern day harem? Have you ever thought, spared a thought for who the founder of Roxy is? and what the story is there. Because if you go to the Wikipedia page, you're not going to find accurate information as we will discuss. I was so lucky to be able to meet Jill a few years ago and I'm she's been such a great friend to me. And this is really fun now that her book, which is called The Currency of Love, was published in 2017 to be able to have her on the podcast. And you know, You write a book because there's a lot of information to cover. And really what she covered in her book was the modeling career and meeting Adnan, as she called it. I've always called him Adnan, Adnan, so you'll notice I call him Adnan and she calls him Adnan. Apples to Adnans, you know? But uh, yeah, Adnan Khashoggi, the Saudi arms dealer in the 1980s, the uncle of Jamal, who was brutally murdered in Istanbul. Um, such an interesting way that her life, um, dovetailed with this family and she was in Adnan's harem for two years and I got to give hats off to her as I do in this interview was actually in love with him and had quite a beautiful relationship. And as he describes in the book, um, he, the terms were that if she was with him for 10 years, They could have a baby together. She could be the world's richest woman, of which Adnan was the world's richest man at the time, billionaire. Um, Yeah, just super, super interesting stuff. I'm sure your brain is swirling with questions, as mine was when I met her. But obviously, it doesn't um, stop there. Instead of going down that fork, Jill goes to fashion and design school and uh, then later founds Roxy in um, a really kind of interesting moment in the early 1990s, where, as we will discuss, there was still a lot of misogyny and patriarchy. And she's now basically been run off, sexually harassed, uh, threatened to be sued. And like I said, there's a complete erasure from her as ever even having been there. So 
Um, what Jill does really, really great is be, um, reveal through these events her inner world and what she's actually thinking and how she's processing these. So it makes for a really, really interesting and introspective um, conversation about someone who I know I'm not the only one will think and does know that this is a very, very interesting person who has lived an interesting life. And we don't get into her childhood too much. But again, that's, I think, what something that the book does really well as well as to describe the conditions that she came from in the time that she came from a lot of what came next of bumbling out in the world, a world that was not made safe for her in a career that was, you know, did not welcome her. Um, as it, as she mentions, doesn't to a lot of, um, marginalized and, um, minorities, people who don't speak English and people who are ripe to be taken advantage of. So what she's, really shows for us is despite all of those things being true, they are the deliverers of some of her most amazing life lessons and what an honor that she's here to share them with us today. Okay. Welcome to the show, Jill. Thank you. I'm so glad you're here. I know it's great to see you again on screen and nice to talk with you again after our weekend that we had in that tent. <laughs> yeah, you're <Ohio>. mates <laughs> forever. <laughs> so I, I've got a bone to pick with you. I'm super mad at you. Oh, thank you. What, is it, what did I do? <laughs> it was about the 20 carat diamond ring that you oh. didn't accept. Yeah, I'm angry so, too. Are you angry? You yeah. regret it. I sh- oh, of course. I wish I had that. I could have used the money like selling it later on. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. So let's give a little bit of context. You've written a book. It's called a- The Currency of Love. And it details your time being a model with Wilhelmina in Paris in the ni- early 1980s. And from there, you meet um, Adnan Khashoggi and you begin a two-year affair as a pleasure wife. So we'll talk a little bit about that, um, but everybody obviously needs to read your book for the more in-depth story. But there's a, a, mo- a point in it where this person, he's the richest man in the world, he's a billionaire, and you guys are actually connecting. I really have to salute you for that, Jill, because I would have definitely just been there for the money. I wouldn't have been actually <laughs> attracted <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. That was the norm. I, I, there was a lot of women that were there for the money. Yeah. Not attracted, but you were attracted. Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of things he's giving you and there's clothes and there's other things, but this ring, you couldn't accept it. No, I, it was, it, well, and it, it was in the beginning, it was just too outrageous for me. It kind of shocked me and scared me. I'd never seen anything like that before. Um, it would be like opening a treasure chest and seeing something that you have never experienced or seen or been exposed to. Mm-hmm. It was just too outrageous for me at that time. And I think if he had done it, you know, like a year into our relationship, I probably would have accepted it and maybe worn it in private. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, I was, I was too fresh to the whole situation. I wasn't used to this wealth. Yeah. It was shocking. That's really interesting. I wonder what it is about. I, I thought about that and I was like, Jill, when I read it, I wanted to scream. 
<laughs> take the goddamn ring. Yeah. Yes. But I thought about myself and different ways in which like we, especially as women have been conditioned to like, oh no, I'm okay. Even on like something so simple, like a piece of gum and right. you want the piece of gum, but you're like, oh no, you know, you're hungry. Oh no, I defer. I don't need it. Not me. And we have this like resistance to receiving. Oh, yeah. I was so like, then that I it's a that too. Yeah, that it's a it's, ring. It's an independent streak that we want to be able to make it on our own. We don't want to owe anyone. We don't want someone coming back and saying, oh, well, if you take this, then you owe me that. Um, but the 20 karat diamond was just shocking mm-hmm. more than anything else. Um, yeah. So you don't receive it. And then he gives it, who did he give it to? He gave it to like his driver or something. He gave it to someone he didn't even care about. He gave it to his house manager. (laughs) It was an asshole. Yeah. And I don't know if that was, he did that in anger of saying, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why he did that. Yeah. But it, it was very offensive for, to me. I found it offensive. Yeah. You know, I mean the same to you as this and you, this evidently this diamond doesn't mean anything to you if you've given it to this guy. Isn't that funny? It speaks to the disconnect between like what you're making of it mm-hmm. and this re- resistance to receiving it. And then him like just giving it out willy nilly was like such a different experience to you not being able to receive it. Yeah. Yeah. He valued it a lot less than I, than mm-hmm. I did. Yeah. That's interesting. So to take us back and, and open it up for us a little bit about, you do such a great job, as I told you in your book about showing the inner world of what you were experiencing and what you were feeling through the experience of getting to Paris, being on your own, meeting him, meeting other different people and yeah, your book then, you know, as you're going through this, there were different um, sexual assaults, borderline rapes, and then this book is being re- written and released right at the height of Me Too. So, I mean, if you could just sort of like take us back and dovetail like the real experience of it with then releasing it in 2017. Right. So when I when I started writing it... Um, I, I'm 60. I just turned 60 and I started, well, I I wanted to write it many, many years ago. I wanted to write it in my twenties, actually, after, right after it happened, I wanted to write it in my thirties. And there were people around me telling me not to do it, that they thought I would be killed. They thought that because of the people that were the powerful people, powerful men in the book, that someone would come after me and kill me. Um, so, and then another friend who was a screenwriter, um, he said, it'll never be published. Don't do it. You know, I was just, there was a lot of people that wanted me to not talk about it and they were worried about my safety. Um, and then when I turned 50, I reassessed my life and I decided like, you know, I've got a limited amount of time left, even if it's 30 years or whatever it is. Um, what is it that I want to do before I'm gone? And I knew that I was supposed to write the book and I wanted to do it. It took me eight years of writing to do it because I had never written a book before. I was trained as a fashion designer and a model and I didn't know how to write a book, of course. Um, And 
when I first started writing it, I hired a couple of editors that one tried to make it more salacious. He was trying to have me use words that you would use maybe in a romance novel or in a pornography thing. And I was, I didn't want that. That was not my mission. And then there was another female editor that I used that was trying to make it politically correct. Like I wasn't allowed to, to say, um, I had a Vietnamese friend. She thought that was racist for me to say, yeah, I know. And, and, and then I couldn't say someone was gay and then I couldn't talk about AIDS and then I couldn't, you know, so she was trying to silence me um, on all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, then I got feedback that it was too graphic. And um, I, I just really had to work on it myself alone over and over and over until I felt like it was as true as I could make it, as accurate and true as I could could make it as, as far as how I felt and everything. And during this time, there was nothing about the U2, or excuse me, Me Too movement. And my book came out uh, in June, and then the Me Too movement happened like about three months later. So, well, first of all, when the day my book came out, Adnan Khashoggi passed away. The exact. Are day. you serious? Yeah. So that was a wow. shock. That was a big shock. And then um, I was promoting the book, and nobody had heard of the Me Too movement. So it, it was just so surreal. And then when the Me Too movement hit, with first starting out with Harvey Weinstein. I had a post-traumatic stress disorder attack and I started going into a depression and major anxiety and depression. And um, I had to be uh, put on an additional medication for depression because I just was getting catatonic. I couldn't, you know, it's like uh, someone who comes back from a war. It's the same thing that happens to your brain when you've been raped and abused. Um, it's weird. It was weird timing. It, it was very strange timing. I still don't understand, but it, but I came out with it and then the Me Too movement happened right after that. Yeah, that is really, really interesting timing, Jill. I thought a lot about that as you're describing different events that I think would have just been so common and still are common, but you're describing them in the 1980s of just being a vulnerable person, mm-hmm. you know, tricked into different you know, flying all the way to Spain to just have it be some job where some guy's trying to sleep with you. There may or not have even been a job. You actually had to run right. other different moments where you're just ever in ever increasingly compromising situations, sitting there and as you describe it in your mind, like, wait, what's going on? And it does take a minute because when you're in this in this thought that everything's fine and this is a professional situation and I'm a professional situation. And then all of a sudden, you know, and sometimes taking off your clothes or having it be a risque, you know, art Mm -hmm. modeling job. And then it becomes clear that it's something very different. I think it's very hard to reorient your mind into that. That's actually happening, especially when you're young, you were 20. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but it started to become so commonplace 
that you're right. You do have to reorient your mind and it's really hard to do that. And it always leaves a residue of pain and it leaves an injury on you that I don't think ever really goes away completely those experiences. And I know that there are girls going through it today. You know, there are girls that are, that are modeling now that are being abused and being lied to and, and being raped and being offered jobs with a different price if they'll sleep with the photographer. And they prey on um, the modeling industry has always preyed upon immigrants, people that don't speak the language and people that are poor women, you know, particularly that are, that are poor and men, male models go through it too. Male models are raped and, and taken advantage of as well. Definitely. Yeah. I think you did a really good job, not only showing, you know, what leads to that and what you're thinking, but what the after effects are and the way that this, you know, I hope you do write a second book. Um, Your book does a really great job, as I said, describing this relationship, describing your time modeling, describing your time leading into going to fashion and design school. And I was curious, and we'll, we'll take that, we'll leave that thread right there um, because I love where that's going and leading into starting Roxy and the way these experiences then were still with you during the building and, and where that whole situation went. Um, But I'm curious at different forks that you got to in the road before you got to design school you had the opportunity to potentially go model in Tokyo you didn't take that in writing the book there were maybe a, you know two or three major forks and you chose another way and now hindsight you're 60 like you said what do you make of those what do you I, that's a tough one oh my god what a good question you know over time i there were times that i regretted definitely that I regretted not going to Japan because I would have been able to see Japan and live in Japan, work in Japan, even if it would have been really difficult and challenging. I missed that opportunity and I, I wished I had known Japan. And then I do think that if I would have gone on to New York with a portfolio of pictures from Paris, that I would have had a fighting chance at doing well in New York. I mean, I don't think that I would be a supermodel. I mean, that's those, it's such a rare thing to have the perfect everything for that particular time. But I think I would have done well, but I really just walked away from it all. Once I realized it didn't fill that hole in my heart that I was really searching for underneath, which is why I got into it in the first place. I was trying to make money, but I was also a curious young woman trying to find the meaning of life. And I thought that when I was successful in my career, I would be instantly happy. And then when I was involved with Adnan, you know, and I saw the money, I thought, oh, wealth will make you happy. And it was really a journey of realizing what would and would not fill my heart and make me feel at peace and, and happy inside. Mm -hmm. I love the part of the book where you start to describe that after 
maybe a year, year and a half, getting close to the two-year mark with him, and you're seeing the excess and the opulence. He had a boat that would then go, you know, on to be sold to Donald Trump, and he had just anything at his disposal, anything and everything, women, jewels, opulent dinners, foods, you know, anything, and, and lots of cocaine. Right. And you, you then start this lifestyle of um, spirituality and even this, this part where you decide that you want to try veganism or some of these other. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying everything I could try. Well, I think that's such an ex- interesting experience to have so young because you're already seeing through the illusion of mm-hmm. that that money to any amount, but especially that amount, could ever be fulfilling for your soul, for your purpose, for your that identity. That was the greatest gift that he ever gave me. And it it's a gift today because I know that, and I live a, a normal lifestyle now, I mean, my husband has a good job. We've got three kids. We all work our tails off. I redo our houses and sell them. And um, plus, you know, taking care of all the kids. But um, whenever we're at a crossroads with my husband's career or if, if I should go back to work or whatever the question is about money, I know that having a lot of money or more money isn't going to change my my level of happiness once you, I mean, but, but if, if I was in poverty, that's a whole different situation. It, but if you've got enough food and you've, you're able to go to the doctor when you need to, the difference of that and having uh, great wealth, I don't feel like there's a huge difference personally. I love that. Yeah. So it, it's, it's giving me the gift of not chasing after money just for money's sake. Um, sometimes I wish I had been a little more aggressive that way. Um, maybe I would have protected myself better in business and and not gotten ripped off like I did when I was running these big companies. Um, but at the same time, it just was really not my motivation. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I don't I live that. in that space. Yeah. Besides that and the goddamn diamond ring, yeah. <laughs> do you do you have any other regrets or or ways that it, it's interesting to look back and go, okay, at that fork, if I'd taken that, my life would have right. turned out so differently. Who would I have been? And it's this really interesting, like nature nurture kind of conversation, right? Like, would I have developed into who I developed into if I'd taken that fork, and I wouldn't have had the children, and I wouldn't have mm-hmm. had the experiences. Yeah, that's true. Because a lot of the decisions that I can look back and say that they were bad decisions, or they were wrong decisions that I made in my life. And not just regarding the book, but even after the book, those decisions that I made that were caught that caused me a lot of pain, made me who I am today and helped me to grow and become a stronger person. And if I had not gone through those things, I wouldn't have had to flex my muscles and learn how to grow. So later on, I got involved with um, two different abusive men in different times in my life. And it really was through, through those horrible experiences that I 
learned how to fight for myself. Because as a child, I wasn't taught that I was important. I was taught that I was not important and I was not wanted. And that my voice didn't matter. That my opinion didn't matter. Um, and so when someone would say, what do you want to do today? And I go, I don't know. What do you want to do? I didn't have the ability to think for myself selfishly or, and it shouldn't even be called selfishly, but I didn't even have the ability to go, you know, I want to go to the beach today. I mean, I would do that if I was by myself, but in a group, I would defer to other people. But it was through difficulty and through threat, really, that I learned how to protect myself. And um, I finally learned how to listen to my inner voice, my own voice, and get clear on that. So I don't think my life, I couldn't have enjoyed certain things because I didn't really have the upbringing to know how to enjoy them. Yeah. You know, I get you're not, you know yeah, because if you're, if you're raised, for example, I think if you're raised in a healthy home where your mom teaches you to be an empowered woman and listen to your voice and, you know, stand up for yourself and have self-esteem. I mean, and not that it's that simple. It's, I'm sure it's not that simple. Anyway, I didn't have that. And it was, it, it, it took life experiences for me to learn it. I had to learn everything the hard way. <laughs> I love that, Jill. That's so true. This is a part of why my work is so important to me as well, because I'm kind of gobsmacked when I go back into different periods of time where feminism and, and equality has been a part of the thread of some people's lives and and they were being raised to depend on themselves and be smart and and that that existed decades before I was born and yet there are certain groups of people who are born into still reliance on a man you are nothing don't look within yourself don't trust was said to me implicitly and explicitly don't yeah. trust yourself in fact one of the first times wow. before i left my religion someone was talking and i said in my mind like i was horrified i said oh my god she's leaning onto her own understanding oh is that, I know, is that not the most bizarre thought to have no so, i no that's amazing that you picked up on that. Right. And now I'm like alarmed in the other way that I would be alarmed that someone was trusting their own intuition. And so it's, it is funny. Yeah. These women who are raised like that do have such a leg up and go them and may they right. be, you know, advocates for other women who don't, because what I realize being born in the time your book is used, your book starts in August, 1980. I was born in November, 1980. So as I was reading it, I was like, Oh, I know where I was. Wow. <laughs> I know. Wow. But, yeah, that's I, even though, yeah. So I I was raised during the sixties and seventies, and I I think it all depended on what home you came up in because my, you know, I have several girlfriends that they had such you know strong parents and great parents, but uh, and my 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 dad was great at teaching me how to work and how to how to work hard, and my parents were very honest. There were a lot of great things about my parents. Um, but my dad was a complete chauvinist and a pervert and addicted to pornography. Um, and I was taught that women were good for being beautiful and sexual and that they were not, he, he, he 
belittled my mom's intelligence constantly, constantly, even more than his daughter's intelligence. He, so, you know, I kind of came into the world shell-shocked, sort of a tomboy, but inwardly shell-shocked and not being, like I looked, I looked strong on the outside, but the inside I was just putty. Mm-hmm. You can see how that happens, how like the conditions, the soil for what grew mm-hmm. is just there and it's automatic and it just happened. So you have this dad who is like that, the posters on the wall. And then this is the narratives that you have assumed and you, your life plays out in different ways where with those narratives on autopilot, your job, it's incumbent upon you to learn those lessons and heal it. And I think you have done an amazing job healing it. I feel the same way. Like it, it's taken me too long. It's taken me too long to unravel and unlearn. When you're so young that you're, you're doing it now. I mean, Mm. I didn't even know how to get help in unraveling all of this. And I was Mm -hmm. trying even in my twenties to find a good therapist and I, I couldn't find a good therapist such different times too, different stigma where, because there is no stigma that it's more out in the open and Google, you can just go Google it, find someone with five stars. Right. Very easy now. Right. It fascinates me. I I get it because we've got that little bit of a generational gap. I look at the kids, your kid's age, you know, it's just getting even better, Mm -hmm. which is the good news and why it's important to keep telling these stories so that people understand. What, what it costs to get there. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. leading up your, your book leads into deciding instead of what you have, you know, these other options before you, you decide to go to fashion and design school and you leave us all, like I said, I hope you write another one because you leave us all on the little bit of a cliffhanger of where that went and how that led up to a starting Roxy, and then of course the fallout. So, I I would love to know once you've graduated from design school, how that all evolved, what happened from there, and yeah, um, what? well, it, it wasn't a direct route from design school to founding Roxy. Um, after design school, I oh my god, I. Got- I got sucked into fundamentalist Christianity, which was like a brainwashing session. Mm -hmm. And um, I was pressured into marrying my boyfriend because they were teaching that premarital sex was a sin and that we were going to go to hell. And had it not been for that religion, there's no way I would have married this guy. But I did. And it was a disaster. Um, But through that, I learned to not listen to men in power in religion and that I needed to listen to my inner voice and what I felt was God speaking to me directly and not doing anything anybody else outwardly told me to do. So that was a huge lesson there for me. But it was a painful, horrible, horrible lesson. Um, But during that time, I designed for a company called On the Beach. And then when I got divorced, I had a babe. I had my, my son was 15 months old. 
And I started um, JAG. I started working at JAG Swimwear, which had just launched right before I got there. Um, but we built it up to we were doing seventeen million dollars a year within three years of me being there, and designing and doing all the fittings. Um, but we had, I mean, it was a great crew. There was, um, oh my God, there was a woman. Her name's Marianne DeWeese, and she owned the original parent company. And um, she was in her 80s, and she knew everything about the swimwear business from like the 1950s. So she was one of my really important mentors, as well as Aline, who's in the book, also being my swimwear mentor. So I grew Jag Swimwear during the 80s, and then I left Jag to start something completely from scratch. Um, and I contacted Quicksilver and I said, I would love to start a women's company inside of your men's company. Do you want to do it? And, um, we did it. So that's, so it didn't happen right away, mm -hmm. right on, uh, excuse me, right away after school, but it happened, um, just a few years later. I think I was 29. Where did you ever through this period hear from Adnan ever again? Yes. Or Adnan as you, yes. you did we would talk on the phone. Oh yeah. We would talk on the phone periodically and he would always ask me to come back and live with him. And, um, I wanted to know that I could do it on my own and I was testing God. Also, I wanted to know if God was real. And so I almost was daring God. It was a game. But it was also, I wanted to have a relationship with the real God. And so I wanted to rely on God and myself. And, and not Adnan and his money? That would have been his money. Because I mm. felt like if I were to go and do that, then, then I'm not doing it on my own. I'm not being a good example for my child who doesn't see me working, who sees wealth, I thought that would be really confusing for a kid growing up. Um, and I was testing God. I really was. It, it's funny. But, but, and I'm not a religious person, but I do meditate and pray. It's just more of a personal thing. And I get confused. Is it God? Is it my voice? Is it God's voice? I mean, I don't have the answers, but I, I wanted to live true to myself, basically. And, and any regrets about that? Yeah. No, no. 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 I mean, there's times when I, I wish I would have had a little bit more fun or taken more vacations with him. You know, I probably should have, I mean, yeah, there's been times that I wish I would have gone just for a vacation or something, but not gotten back into that life again. Mm -hmm. Interesting. No, I like okay. being independent. Yes. I love that. So you, you build this, you build Roxy and what's the timeline from like, pitching the idea, building it, it's growing, it's taking off, mm -hmm. the situation gets out from underneath you or however right. you'd parse it. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I started it in, I think it was February of 1989. And it took me a year to develop it. I mean, there wasn't even a desk. I had to order my own desk. I didn't have an office. There was no phone for me. There was nothing. Um, so I had to set up the company from nothing. There were no spec sheets. There was, I didn't have a, an assistant. I didn't have a production manager. I didn't have a seamstress. 
Um, I had to buy the sewing machine. I had to get a seamstress. And Quicksilver was really not allowing me to invest much. It was strange. Looking back, I can see they were very chauvinistic. And it was almost like the executives that had founded the company were so macho that they felt competition with the women's division and wanted to keep it down and keep the women in a sexual position and not allow it to flourish. Um, and I see that super clearly as I look back um, at the time. I mean, everyone saw it, especially all the women working there, how they weren't investing and they weren't investing and they weren't giving me much help. And I was running myself ragged as a single parent trying to do this thing. Um, but eventually I got to hire a production manager and I got to hire an assistant. Um, and I didn't even have my own sales force. I had to train the existing men's sales force, uh, to sell women's swimwear. Uh, we had one designated, uh, woman in California that was selling it, but that was it across the country. Um, and we launched it in, I think we had 20 international licensees and uh, Australia used the designs that I did. France used the designs that I did. I went to France and helped them launch it there. Australia had made a couple of swimsuits before I started the women's company, just as a like screen printed thing, like Quicksilver. Um, but, and I originally start, originally started it as uh, Quicksilver's women's because no one would know, what Roxy was. So um, we named the division Roxy after, um, I think it was about after a year or so. We just wanted to have- It's also crazy to me that this is true because like you said to me, as we were chatting before recording, you saw the genius in that all of this existed for men, but it didn't exist for women. And yet women are- have the purchasing power. They're the ones spending the dollars. So why are you not marketing to women? You're dumb. Yeah. And, yeah. and finally they, they figured it out because the menswear industry was going down, especially for Quicksilver at that time. And the women's really took over and I knew that was going to happen. And when I talked to Bob McKnight originally, I said, the women's company is going to be bigger than the men's. And he was laughing. He didn't believe me. Um, but I'm, I think it is, I'm sure it is. Yeah. That's so interesting to, to be the recipient of all that pushback when the idea is really sound. (laughs) It makes a lot of intuitive sense. Right. Right. And even on their, like, yeah, we were talking about their Wikipedia page. Um, I had updated it to correct, to correct it, that I was the founder and and then they erased it and said that Bob McKnight and Danny Kwok were the founders. And um, it's not true. And they, that they relaunched it and it never stopped. Um, now, when I, when I left the company, um, their formal reason so that I wouldn't sue them for, um, um, what's the word? Um, uh, wrongful termination. Yeah. Yeah, I think they were worried that I was going to sue for wrongful termination. So they said that they were closing the company, but they never did. It was successful and the denim line was selling, the swimwear was selling, and it just continued. So what's the period of time from the launching of it to like maybe enjoying, how long did you get to enjoy like two years? How long did you get to enjoy before this happened? Right, right. 
Um, three, it was like three and a half to four years. And what was that like? Were you? Oh my God, it was so much fun. Oh my God, I had a ball. I met some of my dearest friends working at Quicksilver. Make good Um, coin? Were you making money? I made made good money for a single parent. And I was, I was promised um, half percent of sales based on certain income. Uh, You know, it was, it was like a sliding scale. If we sold so many million, I would make a certain percentage and, um, yeah, I was making decent money, but I wasn't, you know, raking it in like I wasn't raking it in, but I was very comfortable for a single mother in those days for sure. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I would travel for work. It was a super fun job. I basically created my own job and it was what I loved doing. And I, I have lifelong friends from that time still today that I visit in Hawaii that I, have remained in contact for decades. Um, it was so fun. It was so fun. What, what happened? How did it, um, how did well, it, happen? there was, there was always an, there was always an environment of um, sexual, I don't want to say sexual harassment, but yeah, like they would have my model come in and put on these tiny, tiny swimsuits for no reason at all, but to check out her butt and her boobs um, there was, they would say, well, we'll, we'll, we'll attend the meeting if Lori will wear the Brazilian thongs. Um, but like Bob McKnight would tell me that, well, maybe he was teasing, but still it was hurtful. You know, he didn't want to attend the meeting unless Lori would wear the Brazilian thongs. Um, so there was just In a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. It was just that kind of atmosphere. Oh, and then when they did the quarterly report, because it was a publicly held company, they took my photo because I was the I was running Roxy. And then when the report came out, they put a man's photo over my job description. They didn't want a woman to be on the quarterly report for the company. Isn't that so crazy now? This yeah. is not that long ago. No. And now, of course, things have changed and we want the optics of a visible Female. diversity and inclusion. Right. But right. at the time, that optic, and this is what, like 1992, 93, yeah. like mm-hmm. we're talking <laughs> 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, well, 30, yeah. you know, but it was incredible. It was incredible. Yeah. And their tagline on Instagram is, something like um, empowering women since 1990 and, and people write to me knowing that I'm the founder and they're like wanting me to sponsor them in their sports, but they don't, you know, and I have to tell them, look, I'm not the owner of Roxy. I founded it. I started it, but I don't own it. And they didn't empower women back then. And that was my job. And that was my mission to empower women and make them feel comfortable on the beach and to sponsor them in surf and sponsor their, them in volleyball and all the sports wearing active wear. Um, but meanwhile, behind the curtain was sexual harassment and uh, looking at women as sex objects and not allowing them to progress into executive positions and being held down. And then eventually um, they hired a man that, was obsessed with me and wanted to have an affair with me. And he finally did a physical attack on me in my office. He pulled my shirt off and grabbed me around the neck and um, threatened me with my job. And I told 
Bob McKnight, I cannot work with this guy. One of us has got to go. I cannot work like this. And he was, the guy was also like shoving his foot between my legs into my crotch at meetings with like, you know, about 12 to 15 men, executive men at Quicksilver and me. And I publicly stand up and say, I don't want to say his name because he's, he loves to sue people for defamation because he's so guilty. (laughs) But um, I said, so-and-so just shoved his foot between my legs and my, just shoved his foot in my crotch and all the guys laughed. They thought it was hilarious. So there was no atmosphere of standing up for a woman at all. It was, it was pretty pathetic. And that's why I had to leave. And not only leave, like be pushed out and then sounds like basically almost sued and bullied into Mm -hmm. silence for decades. Right. You left with them withholding your paycheck. Right. They wouldn't give me my check until I signed a document saying that they didn't sexually harass me. (laughs) Basically, they spelled out everything that they did and then wanted me to sign something saying that I didn't do it. And I was totally in shock and they were holding my paycheck over my head. I was a single mother. I didn't have much money in the bank. They had people coming to my house threatening me. The man who accosted me, threatened me at the sales meeting and shoved me up against a bar in a hotel. I was crying in front of the whole sales force, telling them what happened. Nobody stood up for me. Nobody, not one person stood up for me. They were afraid to lose their job, livelihood, whatever their reasons were. Nobody stood up for me, but everybody knew what had happened. It was pathetic. Well, you can see that in 30 years, while things have changed, they haven't changed nearly as much as they need to or will in the future and do you watch um morning show it does such (gasps) a good job at showing the nuance of the way it's almost these men who are doing it cannot see it it's so ingrained in our culture and psyche and even internalized misogyny i love the way marianne williamson said it the other day that like this is a real idea that has even taken root in the psyches and minds of a lot of women. And I feel that way. My first 30 years on earth, I had a lot of internalized misogyny where I was making excuses for the status mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you have to survive in yeah. the world that we live in. And it was a survival mechanism. That's right. For everyone, yeah. for yeah. you. And then the way it's playing out within the group, women either want to defend you or they can't see it because of internalized misogyny. Right. These men right. who are responsible for it want to give up none of their privilege and right. power right. to admit that what they're doing is what they're doing. Right. And yet, and this is why I love the morning show too, then this total predator it, you know, is not as much of a predator as this guy, but then over here, he's a good dad. So how do we make sense of all of right. these? Exactly. And the things yeah, in play. Because nobody's, this is the other thing I've learned. And by the way, the morning show was phenomenal. I loved it. I thought it, they did a great job and also a great job of showing the effect that it has where the woman, whether she, I don't know if it, you know, if it continues, if they're going to say that she was killed or if she killed herself, it looked mm-hmm. like it was suicide. But these, these kinds of attacks can cause suicidal thoughts. Definitely. Cause I've had them in the past, yeah. you know, um, for sure. Talk about when we go to this Wikipedia page and you don't exist on there. <laughs> what is the 
what does the erasure feel like? And what is it an allegory for? Oh God. It's I'd say it's an allegory of of men just shoving it under the carpet and not wanting to admit that they've done these things. They don't they don't want me to talk about it. They want me to stay quiet and they want me to not talk about it. And I'm done with that. At 60 years old, if I don't talk about it now, when will I? Do I have to wait till I'm 80 or 90? You know, these mm. things happened um, when I was 30. So that's 30 years ago. I'm not yeah. going to stay quiet anymore. And if they, if they want to fight me, I believe that there will be dozens of women that will come out and tell the truth about Quicksilver because it's I, time was now. Not, I was time. not the only one. Yeah. No. And, and when, I know stories that happened. I know so many stories. <laughs> have they fixed it? Is the culture fixed? Do you think now? You don't know. I hope so. You know, it may, it might be, but I, I read a thing on Glassdoor a couple years ago that it was still an extremely um, chauvinistic place and that mm-hmm. they, she was a board member and she actually left because it was, they wouldn't listen to anything she said, that they were totally against listening to women. So it could well, still be it, like that at the top. And if they haven't apologized, you cannot heal when you have not made an amends for the past. You cannot. So what would be the telling indicative measure would be coming out and owning this, putting you on the page and not sweeping this under the rug, admitting that it happened, mm-hmm. saying that they're sorry. And amazing. I, I don't expect them to do it, but it would be great. I, I, I've, it's never happened in 30 years. Yeah. I can't imagine them doing that. They, they, money means too much to them. Um, they've sold out. They have mm. no integrity. They've sold out to money and power. Yeah. Is it weird to, to talk about it? Does it feel good? Does it feel powerful? What does it feel like to talk about these living people? It's, it's hard. Um, it's hurtful. You know, it, it's funny that the, the things that I, that I worked on and wrote about in my book, I am more healed from the things that I have not spent years writing about and repeating again and again and again, editing. Those are more fresh. And that would be one of the reasons that I would write the second book. So it's still very painful to me um, to think about the things that I, that have happened. It's still very, very hurtful. Mm -hmm. It's very hurtful. Other living people, uh, this doesn't have to do with Quicksilver or Roxy, Mm -hmm. but living people like um, in Adnan's life, you mentioned in the book, there was um, a daughter very close to your age. You're like 21, 22. She's 19. That's a big gap at the time. You're her dad's lover, (laughs) but now she'd be your same age. Right. I know. I know. And I just, found out that someone I know lives next door to her. <laughs> oh, really? Where does she yeah, live? It's a, it's a small world. Well, she probably yeah. has houses all over and um, she, it's the United States, but I don't really okay. want to okay. say where. Okay. But, no but worries. Yeah, I'm, in, I'm in contact with some of his family mm-hmm. um, in a, just a friendly way. Um, what did they yeah, do with the book? I don't know. I don't know. You I don't, don't talk know. about that. 
Well, one of the family members loved it. I know that. Um, others, others, others were just really happy that I told the story about Adnan's personality. And mm -hmm. it wasn't just all about him being an arms dealer and the political side that most people know about. Mm -hmm. My book was not about that. My book was more about what he was like as a, as a person mm -hmm. and how funny he was and, you know, silly. So, and that's how the, the family knew him. Um, so they appreciated that, but um, you know, the whole thing is crazy. And now with, uh, I think it's his nephew that was murdered, Jamal Khashoggi, that the family's been through so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a horrible legacy that they yeah. have to live with. So they're very private, you know, they, you know, and I'm sure they have tons of money and they don't want anyone coming after it. Um, but I think they try to lay low. Yeah. For both of these stories, telling the truth comes with such a price. You said if you'd written the book or the fear was earlier that there would be some retribution talking about, you even just couldn't say this guy's name for the fear of retribution. Isn't telling the truth so crazy? It's so crazy what it costs you, even inside to yourself. Right. But to right. once once you did release the book, you didn't have fears of retribution, it sounds like, for that part of it. No, I just decided to go for it. And I was ready. And I was ready with whatever they were going to come at me with. And I didn't care anymore. The same with my agent in Paris saying that he raped me. Um, I was ready to just say, you know, what are you going to do to me? And and I feel that way um, about Quicksilver now too, that I feel that way about all of it. I think that it's, I'm tired of keeping secrets. I'm tired mm -hmm. of keeping secrets for people's bad behavior. So I'm not going to do it anymore. Yes, Jill. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Tell, talk to me about shame because that's a real driver for keeping those secrets, isn't right. it? Right, right. Um, well, shame, shame was pushed on me by other people into um, staying quiet. Like, uh, for example, Quicksilver threatened me with um, bringing out the past about me being in a harem and that the jury wouldn't believe me that I was um, sexually harassed because I had been in a harem previously and that that tells of my character <laughs> that makes me the whore or whatever. Um, so I was, I was shamed for being in the harem. I was shamed. Um, you know, people would say men, if I was going on a date later would, I knew they were thinking, Oh, were you a hooker? You know, were you a high priced call girl? Um, because you couldn't have actually been in love with this person. <laughs> um, maybe, I don't know. But I, I just decided it at one point when I was, I think I was like 27, that I'm done with it. I'm going to tell the truth. And if someone doesn't like it, then they can't be friends with me. I don't want a friend who can't accept me for who I really am. And have you... 
in the year, like now I think it's probably like, oh, cool, you were in a harem. You had all of these experiences that had been experiences that were painful and shameful to you and that kept you small. But now, you know, that's one thing in these years where times have changed um, slightly. Mm-hmm. Right. Now <laughs> people think it's funny. It. They're like, oh yeah. my God. And plus they see me, I'm a 60 year old woman with, you know, grown children. And, you know, it, I'm not this like young, uh, glamorous young woman. You know, you they're not going to slut shame me. I don't think now that I'm the age that I am. <laughs> I think things have been, <laughs> I'm not the right, I mean, at least it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> That's oh, that's funny. Yeah. It's a different funny. world now, though. I, I think people are much more open. Yeah. We, we didn't have the internet before. We hadn't, we didn't know so many other people's stories. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could leave us with one last message that is your overall, you know, deepest value from your life and and what you've lived and experienced and want to talk about and want to offer something to you know women and the world and how it can be made better and be changed what what would it be what's your one mm-hmm. um, i would i would say to the, the most important thing that I learned over all of this is to listen to my own voice and listen to my own logic. And if it doesn't make sense to me, don't do it. And uh, don't go by what other people say, but to listen to what you think is, is right in your heart and give your, give your heart and your own thoughts priority and more importance than what other people think of you. And one more thing I would add is that shame can keep you small and just know that everyone carries shame and that if you study shame, the best thing that you can do is to talk about the thing that you feel ashamed of with someone that you trust and get it out, get it out, out of your body, talk about it and don't hold it in because when you hold it in, it keeps you small and it keeps you down. So those are the two things I would say. Listen to your voice and and overcome any type of shame that's holding you back. And don't live in fear. Take chances. Take risks. Have an adventurous life. Don't live in fear. Amen times 10. Jill, I love that. <laughs> Where can people find you? Well, the uh, jilldodd.com has a lot of um, videos and pictures and things. And then my book is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and uh, all kinds of bookstores. Um, yeah. And it's on Audible and iTunes and everything. And you've got something coming out on Vice? It's not out yet. Yes, but Vice Media. Oh, and my book's on Kindle too. So you can get it anyway. Um, yeah, Vice Media is doing a, we're doing an interview on Extremes. It's Extremes season two. It's their podcast with a man named Julian and he's hilarious. Um, it's launching in a couple of weeks. 
where you go more like really in depth about the Roxy stuff. And this is new for you to talk about. I swear. Am I wrong that like yeah. four years ago you were like, no, nope, not allowed to talk about that. Can't talk about it. Like focusing on the harem stuff, but that is like a separate thing. And just, yeah, we're not going there. I, I can't remember, yeah. but I, well, I, I, would I was getting that. Sense. I was, I would talk about it with friends in person, but mm-hmm. I, I didn't talk about it in public back then at all. Yeah, but now that's, that's fuck it. Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, love it. On that note, love you and leave you. Thank you so much, Jill. I loved this. This was such Thank a treat. Matt. I love you. Mm. You thank you for being here, and I hope you enjoyed my interview with Jill Dodd. I would love to connect with you on my website where you can find my free 21-day accountability journal if that is something that would help you and serve you in your life or at Natalie Q on Instagram. And we'll see you back here next week. Thanks a lot.